Hello and welcome to the Pilgrim Way. My name is Norman Graham and I'm a minister in the Baptist Union of Churches in Scotland. The aim of these signposts is to try and help to connect the text of the Bible with our everyday lives. Welcome to our series on the Sermon on the Mount and uh, today I'm going to be looking at uh, a few verses from Matthew chapter 5 verses 13 uh, to 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your father in heaven. Well, the, um, the popular movie uh, iRobot starring Will Smith is based on some of Isaac Asimov's old science fiction stories. Uh, the main protagonists in the story uh, encounter an NS5 uh, robot called Sonny who apparently has the ability to choose whether or not to obey the three laws that control the actions of all other robots. In one encounter, uh, Sonny talks about a dream that he had and his belief that his father made him for a purpose and that everyone has a purpose. Sonny's question is actually uh, a very vital question, one that many are asking. It's one of the most important questions of life. What is my purpose? Why am I here on this earth? What difference does my being here make in the world? Everyone wants to believe that their life has purpose and meaning. Um, it's a kind of universal desire, almost as though it's in our DNA. And isn't that why we put um, headstones at graves? Uh, we want to, it's, a, it's a statement made to say that this person uh, lived, that this person existed, that they mattered, that they made a difference, that they were loved. In just a few words in our text, today encapsulates the purpose for which Jesus calls people to follow him and the way that they will matter in the world. Uh, the opening verses of the Sermon on the Mount, known as the Beatitudes, set out Jesus' vision for the kind of character that his followers will demonstrate, the kind of people that they will be in the world. In the final Beatitude, Jesus speaks of the surprising impact that the world is going to have on his followers. The world will persecute them, insult them, falsely accuse them, will say all kinds of evil against them. And then in verse 13, he begins to describe the equally surprising effect that his followers will have on the world. They will be salt and light. Yet when you read the description of Jesus' followers in the Beatitudes, the claim to be salt and light raises a number of questions. After all, as John Stott notes, what possible influence could the people described in the Beatitudes exert in this hard, tough world? What lasting good can the poor and the meek do, the mourners and the merciful, and those who try to make peace, not war? Would they not simply be overwhelmed by the flood tide of evil? What can they accomplish whose only weapon is purity of heart? Are such people not too feeble to achieve anything, especially if they are a small minority in the world? Well, when you look at the world around you, it's not too difficult to be sceptical 
about the idea that followers of Jesus, as described in the Beatitudes, can accomplish anything worthwhile in the world, a world so hard and so cruelly opposed to those kind of characteristics. The violence of the war in Ukraine, multiplied by the horrific uh, war crimes committed by Russian soldiers against civilians, is enough on its own to convince us that the Beatitudes have it all back to front. In order to survive and thrive in the world, you need to be hard and tough and cruel and merciless. Or, as Jack Reacher, the fictional hero of Lee Child's novel, says, you need to get your retaliation in first. Yet Jesus clearly doesn't share this scepticism. The you in verse 13 is very emphatic. And he doesn't say you should be the salt of the earth or you might become the salt of the earth. But he says you are the salt of the earth. He assumes it's already an accomplished fact and he certainly presents it as such. <coughs> Excuse me. One of the distinctive features of Jesus' preaching is the way he used ordinary, everyday objects and situations to illustrate his message. And of course, what was ordinary and everyday 2,000 years ago is not necessarily the same today. So it's worth taking time to, to note a few aspects about salt and light. Uh, firstly, salt is a preservative. It was something that absolutely everyone listening to Jesus would have used on a daily basis in the home. Artificial refrigeration was invented in the mid-1800s, but before that time, throughout all of human history, salt was the main means of preserving food, especially meat. In fact, some countries even today, where they ha don't have uh, any electricity or don't have a, a constant supply of it, um, it is still used as the main means of preserving meat. So for us, uh, in, the, in the West, uh, adding salt to food is merely a matter of personal taste. I prefer chips uh, with just a touch of salt on them uh, and other folk don't. Some folk like to pile it on. It's all a matter of personal taste and flavour. And I don't often put salt on anything else. The importance of the salt in the ancient world was that it was essential for preserving food and therefore essential for preserving life. Without it, people would have starved. Until the advent of refrigeration, it was critically necessary, a critically necessary ingredient in human survival, and it still is in many countries today. We might not use it so much in the West because it's, it's usually already added to our food by the producers. However, it's not just food that perishes, it's people. The Bible often speaks about people perishing both in a literal sense and in a spiritual sense. For example, in 1 Corinthians 1.18, uh, the Apostle Paul writes that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. A paradox of humanity is that whilst our bodies are growing and developing from conception, decay and death are already built in. And in the normal scheme of things, as we get older, we move towards that end point. We perish. However, people are also perishing in the sense that we are under the judgment of God for our sin. And so there is a second death in view, a spiritual perishing. The Gospel declares that Jesus is God's answer to that perishing. As John says in his Gospel, God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus seems to be suggesting here that his followers, as people that demonstrate the characteristics described in the Beatitudes, 
will be people who will help to preserve what is good, essential and necessary in society, preventing it from total corruption and decay and death. Jesus' followers have to take what is good in society and keep it wholesome, preserving it from decay. But that in some way, they will also help to preserve them eternally by being salt and light, bearing witness to the truth of the gospel. They will preserve the gospel in society. Secondly, salt is associated with purity. Now the Bible um, symbolically associates salt with purity in two contrasting ways. In 2 Kings 2, the people complained to Elisha that water from the spring was bad, causing the land to be unproductive. And so Elisha takes some salt and throws it into the spring and, and he says that God has healed it. And the people drank uh, from that well. It was good. Salt was also used to describe the very opposite of purity. In Deuteronomy 29, it's used as a symbol of God's judgment on the people uh, in the destruction of the land as a burning wasteland of salt and sulphur. Uh, thirdly, salt gives flavour. We all know that salt draws out the distinctive flavour of certain foods, that without it some foods would be bland and tasteless. It provides the necessary seasoning. It's been said that the only difference between a chef and a cook is that a chef has been taught how to season properly. Jesus' followers as salt in the world are to bring out the flavour of life as God intended it to be. In John 10.10 10, Jesus said that his purpose was to bring life in all its fullness. His disciples then should bring a flavour and richness to the lives of those around them. Sadly, that's not always the reputation that Christians have. Oliver Wendell Holmes, the American doctor, writer and poet, is reported to have said that he would have gone into ministry if it were not for the fact that so many ministers he knew looked and acted like undertakers. Sometimes people are turned off the message about Jesus because his followers uh, give the impression that anything that is fun might be a sin. They go about like Father Ted holding signs saying, down with this sort of thing. But that's not how it should be. Jesus' followers should be the ones who bring the deepest and fullest joy and flavour to life. And fourthly, salt causes thirst. The lifestyle described in the Beatitudes is in stark contrast to the ways of the world. In fact, it is a critique and condemnation of the ways of the world. And yet, there is an attractiveness to it that draws people who long for a life that is meaningful and filled with purpose. Jesus' followers should live in such a way that onlookers become thirsty for the kind of life that they see in them. What a challenge! And it's likely that Jesus had some or all of these ideas in mind when he used the metaphor of salt to describe his followers. But the other metaphor he uses is to describe his followers is light. Something else that would have been used daily in uh, people's homes. Candles and oil lamps were the only means of artificial light. Uh, once it got dark, well you couldn't just go and flick a switch and turn on the electric lights because there was none. Jesus qualifies the light as their good deeds in which they are to let shine before men. In other words, being a disciple of Jesus um, is um, uh, it's not a, a private uh, inner spiritual experience 
Rather, it is one that is to be demonstrated in, in the practice of their good deeds. And as we'll see as we go on through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, those good deeds such as uh, loving your enemies, uh, giving a drink to the thirsty, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked and so on, all those things uh, will be spelled out as the Sermon on the Mount indeed as uh, the Gospel uh, uh, continues. The use of light as a metaphor for life points to several meanings. Light dispels the darkness. It only takes one candle to banish the night, allowing us to see things more clearly. And it's for this reason that light is often used as a metaphor for understanding and for wisdom. And so we have the idiom in our culture, I've seen the light, meaning, ah, now I get it, I understand. In 2 Corinthians 4 and 4, Paul writes that the God of this age, that's the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And, and what he's saying here is that our very lives are to bring the light that the people need to see the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to understand it and accept it. Light also gives direction. So much of our lives seem to be nothing more than fumbling around in the darkness. You know, we all have to make decisions in life. Some of them are quite trivial. Some of them are life-changing decisions. The psalmist says that the word of God is the light for his path, meaning that it illuminates the way he should go. It gives the direction that he needs. We need the, the light of God's word to give us the direction for our lives that brings meaning and purpose to our lives. And our lives have actually to demonstrate that. And of course, light provides a sense of security. Um, it's incredible how being in total darkness can be um, bring real fear to our hearts and minds. Uh, in the dark, uh, it brings uncertainty. We can't see, uh, you know, just even a foot in front of us. We can't see where we're going and we don't know what's coming. But a light, even a small light, gives a sense of security. It banishes the fears that lurk in the darkness. Our lives are to bring light in such a way that, that we demonstrate that the truth of Jesus dispels the fears that lurk in the darkness. There's a note of warning of course in these verses that we can't afford to ignore. Salt can lose its saltness and light can be hidden. How can salt lose its saltness? It can lose it by being corrupted by another element. We are either disciples of Jesus or we are not. We can't be, well, the Apostle James puts it bluntly in James 4 and 4, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. In other words, the more you let your life be determined by the ways of the world, by the thinking and philosophy and ethos of the world that is opposed to God, the less and less and less is your life going to demonstrate the gospel of Jesus, the salt and light that you're meant to be in the world. It's also stating the obvious, I guess, to say that light can become utterly useless if it is hidden in a bowl. You know, our light can be silenced by our silence. We can hide it away. And the world wants us to do that. The world wants to say, yeah, yeah, you can be a Christian, you can believe all your things, just keep it to yourself, as though it was a private thing. The point in the warnings is simply that whilst Jesus' followers are called to be salt and light in the world, it's possible for them to fail to achieve that. 
to be that. The purpose of salt is to preserve and flavour. The purpose of light is to dispel the darkness, providing direction and safety. In the same way, the purpose of being a follower of Jesus is to preserve what is good in society, to bring the light to the darkness of people's minds and lives. And salt is salty, light is light. They don't actually have a choice in what they are. It's the core of their existence. It's the, their nature to be what they are. In the same way, followers of Jesus can't choose to be salt and light uh, or, or not. According to Jesus, that is their nature. A nature that has been described in the previous verses in the Beatitudes. And it naturally follows that anyone who is not being salt and light is acting contrary to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. In effect, such a person is not being a follower of Jesus, no matter what else they may say otherwise. Jesus states very clearly in John 14.21 who his followers are. He says that the ones who truly love him are the ones who obey his teaching. In Luke 6, 43 and 44, Jesus says, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognised by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. In other words, the kind of person that you are is obvious from the fruit that your life produces. The character of Jesus' followers is described in the Beatitudes and the fruit of that character is that his followers will be salt and light in the world. And so, if we claim to be followers of Jesus, we must ask the question of ourselves, to what extent are we fulfilling our purpose, our calling to be salt and light in the world? What kind of fruit is our life producing? What kind of impact are we making in the world? Are we being silent? Are we hiding our light under a bowl? Has our, our salt lost its saltiness? What good, good deeds, if any, are we doing in the world and in our community? To paraphrase missiologist Michael Frost, if the local church that you and I are part of was to close down tomorrow, what difference would it make to our community? Would they even notice? Are we still salty? Are we still bringing the light? Thanks for listening.